What was the toughest decision that you guys have had to make today? Anybody want to offer one? Getting up this morning. Okay. Toughest one I had was just a minute ago, I had to decide what to do with my gum. Okay? Usually it's behind my ear, but I swallowed it for you guys this morning. So, it's a labor of love. I was uh, privileged to go to college when uh, many of you as students were unyet born or just born, uh, 1964 to 1967, and I attended a college which I'm sure some of you have a stereotype of, just as uh, we all have of various places that we think of. I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, and as a result, uh, experienced a variety of things, but one of the things that it reminds me of as we're going to be looking this morning about a subject that's very dear to my heart, that of knowing God, was all of the days which I wasted in chapel. I sat right where you sat. Uh, I see Dr. Howe out here who uh, lovingly helped me dissect a pig fetus uh, in biology class. And I can remember his excitement going to chapel. And I can remember the excitement of a lot of other kids going to chapel. But for me, it was a punch in, punch out. What a drag. What a waste of my time. I could be out doing something significant, Lord. Golfing. Playing volleyball. Soccer. Baseball. Tennis. Laying on the beach with my newlywed wife. A variety of things I could think about. But chapel... It just wasn't real exciting to me. And I believe that as you sit there, uh, there's one thing that has changed over the years, and that is that I now have a better understanding of who God is. And I've begun to get my life perhaps into a better perspective than I had when I was your age. And this morning I want to share with you something that, in a very real and tangible way, about a year and a half ago, has really helped me get a grasp, I think, on why I'm here and who I am. There's a verse in Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 7. And God says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I've created, whom I'm fo- who I have formed, and who I have made. And I began to wrestle with that verse, and at first I thought, Gee, the writer of this verse began to stutter. He created us, he formed us, he made us, sounds like the same thing to me. And I looked at that, I began to take the very uh, minute Greek or Hebrew tools that I owned from seminary, and I looked at those three words, and the first word created means to make something new. So God has called us for his glory by his name, and he says, I've begun a new work in you, you're a new creation. And he says, I formed you. As a potter forms the uh, object which they are working on, so you, Bob, are in the process of being formed. And finally, the idea of made. I will finish the project, Bob, that I've started. I'm going to make you into something complete someday. And as I look at my life then, I realize God began it, God's transforming it, and he's going to complete it. I'm along for the partnership I'm here not just for a free ride, but in that process, um, if I don't spend time getting to know who he is, 
I'm going to go through life stumbling and bumbling along because I have no clue of the one who created me for a specific purpose. And it's a very cruel thing for us to do to ourselves. For you see, it's as though we're going through life blindly. He is the one who made us. If we don't know who he is and what he's purposed for us, we're going to have a hard time pleasing him and carrying out what he's asked us to do. There's basically two approaches to getting to know God. J.R. Packer calls it the balconeer approach or the one who's down in the parade. You and I can be armchair quarterbacks. A couple days ago, I went over to school to grab a hamburger and I sat and watched about four innings of uh, the final Dodger-St. Louis game. And it was interesting because there was a variety of people in there. Some of the people were waiting for their documentary film on the faces of death to begin. Uh, Maybe some of you got to see that. Uh, (laughs) Some of you were spared probably from seeing that. But we sat there as vicarious second-hand people. We weren't down on the stadium floor. We were as though we were spectators. And when we talk about knowing God, we need to look at the idea that we are trying to know God by experience. Not as people who sat staring at that television and said, oh, he should have walked him. If he'd have only walked him, Jack Clark never would have hit that home run. Right? We second-guessed. We had ideas. We, we picked apart the strategy, the players, and on and on it went. But you see, since I played for eight or nine years professionally, I knew how Niedenfuhrer felt when he gave up that rocket out of the stadium. Because that was it. It was all over. I knew by experience what that felt like. But I also knew the exhilaration of the Cardinal team because I'd been on that end too. And that's a whole lot different, you see, than sitting in front of the TV and saying, I know the Dodgers lost. I know just how that pitcher felt. No, you don't. Not unless you threw one of those one day. See, you don't know. You don't know how Clark felt. When he left the batter's box, you know what he did? He took a few steps... He knew the ball was gone, and he spent time looking at his dugout. He wanted to watch his teammates celebrate with him before he started his trip around the bases. It was an exciting time for him. As we approach knowing God, we need to do it as travelers. And I believe this is intensely practical because it's changed my life uh, tremendously. I begin this on the premise that ignorance of God results in Christians who are ill-equipped to honor him. If we don't know who he is, we can't worship him right. These aren't new paths. These are a direction and a call to old ones, to a God who is as he was in the past. A call to you and I to redeem the time, as it tells us in Ephesians 5.16. If I could go back and do things over, I'd take advantage of where you sit. I did not study hard. I did not uh, pursue holiness. I went through school. I got out, and I only took the grad record exam because it was required. I was going to spring training. I had better things planned. You know what? I graduated from honors from college with barely uh, knowledge between my ears. And when I had to take my GREs, I was fourth, fourth percentile in the nation as far as people who have graduated in that field. I should have been up near the top according to my grades. 
But all I had was knowledge, no experience. It was a wasted four years in many ways. I encourage you guys to begin to know who God is so that perhaps the experience you have here won't be wasted. Spurgeon said that the highest science, the loftiest speculation, and the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is to study the name, the nature, the work, the person, and existence of the great God we call our Father. Nothing will enlarge your intellect or magnify your soul like a devout, earnest investigation of God. The psalmist in 42.1 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. This subject will humble you beyond imagination, because although God is knowable, he's incomprehensible in many ways. We just barely, in a sense, have the door to his glory cracked open. But he is knowable. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 9, and let's look at verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Many of us have a variety of natural talents and abilities. Some of you excel at... uh, various sports or various academic endeavors, music perhaps, certain hobbies. And there's a tendency for us to uh, want to boast when we are able to excel beyond what other people do. And God here gives us uh, something to think about. And he says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts of this. This is the key. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If you want to boast about anything at all, sort of like what Paul says when he says, I boast only in the cross, boast that you understand and know God. Now, who among us today would stand up and say, I understand and know God completely, right? You would probably be a small pile of ashes that we could put in an urn very quickly because none of us can say that with complete confidence. We're being transformed. We're beginning to be like him. We're on the way. We're in process, but we got a long way to go. But I would encourage you to memorize this verse, to run it through your mind over and over again. For this indeed is something that God delights in. People that know and understand him. People that know who he is. I'd like to address a series of questions to you very quickly. And the first one is, what would you do with the knowledge about God that you receive? What would you do with the knowledge about God? It's real practical, it can be, but there's a danger. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Verse 2 says, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. It's kind of like with humility. About the time you think you're humble, you're not. See, the things that we think we know... Oftentimes we don't know as we ought to. There's a danger to that. Make sure that you realize the purpose for gaining knowledge about God is God himself. 
It is simply the means to an end of knowing who he is. Our desire is to know the truth about him in order that our heart may respond to the truth and our life conform to it. Turn to Romans chapter 11, if you would. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Now, some of you are going to feel this morning like you have been fed through a fire hydrant. Okay? It's been turned on and blown a few kids right across the street if they wanted to get cooled off in the summer. That's my desire. Some of you, though, will be like I was in 1964. You're not even going to notice there was a fire hydrant you were parked in front of. You're just going to leave. Well, made it through another chapel today. Part of it is because I don't think we understand, verse 33, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who, know, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. When I think about our relationship with God, I'm trying to develop some kind of a schematic that would be able to describe what I think is going on in the dynamics of us as Christians. If that overhead on the chair over there represented God, and where I stand today is where I perceive myself in relation to God, that would, say, be a distance of 10 feet. As I come to know God, the reality is that I grow closer to him. So let's say that the music stand over there is really where I am in regard to God today. This is where I think I am. That's where I really am. And it'd probably be light years away if we had a larger auditorium. So we think we're this far away. As we get to know God a little bit better, we would think that we would say, well, we're getting a little closer. But the reality is we're getting a little closer, but we're a whole lot farther away than we really thought we were to begin with. As you begin to get to know God, your relationship with him will close up. But the reality of that relationship will diminish in the sense that you will actually see yourself as much farther away from God than you thought at the beginning. When you get that concept, I think you begin to grow. Uh, a second question. How can one turn their knowledge about God into knowledge of God? We can know all about any subject. We talked a little bit about baseball. You can be the best baseball uh, knowledge person in the world. You can know all the rules, all the teams, all the statistics, all the players, everything you want to know about baseball. But if somebody said to you, I want you to go out and hit the ball, you'd go, wait a minute. I only know about baseball. I haven't experienced it. And besides, since I know about it, I know it goes 90 miles an hour sometimes, and sometimes it goes astray, and I don't want to get hit. So we want to make sure that we take our knowledge about God and turn it into knowledge of God. I'll give you three practical suggestions on how to do that. The first thing is to recognize that God initi initiates whatever we know about him. God initiates whatever we know about him or we understand. I'm going to share with you just kind of a, uh, a series of verses to illustrate that. Remember when Adam and Eve fell, 
they ended up hiding from God. And from the very beginning, just as God created them, he came back to them and he initiated something into their lives. He initiated uh, his own presence back into their lives. In Romans chapter 1, it says in verses 19 and 20, that which is known about God is evident within them. Talking about the heathen. For God made it evident to them. His invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen and understood so that they are without excuse. A knowledge about God is not necessarily the key because these people had knowledge about him, didn't they? But they said, no thanks. We'll worship someone that we make in our own image. John 1, 12 and 13 talks about as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become their children, those who believed in his name. But then an interesting verse follows. Verse 13 says, they weren't born of the will of man, but of God. There was a dynamic where God initiated. John chapter 6, as you read through, you see that in verse 37 and verse 44, the only ones that come to the Father are the ones that are drawn by him. There's no other way. God's initiating. God's the one who is beginning to take this knowledge about him and make it experiential. And finally, in John chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, all whom God gives to Jesus may have eternal life. And this, eternal, and this is eternal life, that they may know him, the only true God, and Jesus who he sent. You're not going to know him, uh, only about him, until he initiates a work in your heart and then you know of him. It becomes personal and it becomes real. A second thing, beyond realizing that God initiates, you need to meditate on this truth. Um, when I swallowed my gum, it's just a half piece, but it went part way down and came back up. It had to go back down again. The word meditate in the Old Testament is that kind of word. It talks about the cow that chews its food and then sends it through a series of stomachs and it comes back up. That's what we're to do with the Word of God. When we have this knowledge of Him, this needs to continually course through our minds. In first, uh, Second Corinthians, I believe it is, chapter 5, verse 10, it says that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every single thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If we know who God is, we can measure any philosophy, any kind of uh, strange doctrine that comes into our life, and by meditating upon God's word and praying, our minds will become so crystal clear that there's no doubt of what the counterfeit is. A third thing about taking knowledge about God and, and making it knowledge of God would simply be to listen to God and to obey him. In Psalm 81:13, he says, Oh, that my people would listen to me. Some of you are listening right now, but in a sense you're not hearing. There's no understanding going on because you're not spiritually tuned in. This is one of the frustrations of Christianity. There were many people during that time in school where they were motivating, encouraging. They were excited about who God was. And they were saying, Bob, get off your spiritual rear end and move with the Lord. And I said, I hear you, but I'm not into that right now. Two things to think about. Your campus will be made up of a variety of people. Some will be walking with the Lord in an active sense. And some won't be. 
if you're fortunate enough, by God's grace, to be in a position of walking with him, be patient. Be patient with those around you who rebel because it's God who's at work within them and it's God who's going to bring about the changes. You could have taken me to a whipping post and probably beat me to death and I still would have said no thanks. I don't want that. Be patient. And if you're one of the ones who are, you know, ready for your beating, it's not worth it. Uh, you're missing the, the hilarity and the joy of, of the Christian walk. Well, another question. What are those who know God like as they mature? What are they like? What kind of people are they? How do they see life? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verses 6 to 8. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. A lot of people don't enjoy that. They're not tuned in. They're not alive. They're not excited. And I believe people who know God are very excited. And I'm not talking about what perhaps you might think I'm talking about. I'm not talking about hype. I'm not talking about college rallies and rah-rah stuff. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a heart that's changed for God and is excited to know God and to thirst and hunger after his righteousness. It's got nothing to do with programs or motivational speakers. I know a lot of motivational speakers who could sell you anything, but they have no clue about what real excitement is as a Christian. Well, these kind of things help you keep your life in perspective, I, I believe. The one who doesn't know God is going to spend a lot of time nostalgically dreaming about things. They're going to dream about what might have been. They're going to dream about what was gained. And they're going to dream about perhaps what the future is. Having played professional baseball and going to uh, four spring trainings with major league clubs, having played five years at the highest level and never playing in the major leagues, I could sit and dream as I watch games about what might have been. Lots of ball players have come and gone. Ones I played with, ones who I defeated, ones who I was better than, they've gone on to become millionaires. Others of those players I made famous <laughs> along the way. But you see, I can't look back at relationships and say, gee, if I'd only married so-and-so, or if I'd have only made that certain pitch, or if I'd have just studied a little harder for that certain exam. You see, that really doesn't matter. When all is said and done and you and I stand before God, he's not going to ask us if we hit a slider out of the ballpark or whether we got a B in Greek instead of a D. You're going, hallelujah, that's good news, Bob. But my folks are going to ask me that, okay? we got to deal with things here and now. We do sometimes have to think about the future. But these are the kind of things, if you turn to Philippians chapter 3, that you can see the Apostle Paul, who later on in that same passage has said to us, I've learned to be content. I know what it is to have a lot. I know what it is to have a little. But I've learned to be content. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, he has just really talked about uh, how we are to beware of false teachers and things like that. And, and now I think he gives us some real practical advice about life. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. But more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. When we have that kind of perspective, life comes back in to focus. When you and I worry about grades, we worry about vocation, we worry about whether we'll be single or married all our lives, when we worry about where we're going to live, how much money we're going to make, how many children we're going to have, what uh, graduate school we're going to go to, what name we're going to leave for ourselves in this world, we're worrying about things that are insignificant. Paul says, I'm counting all the things that I've gained as lost. They're rubbish. They're absolutely unusable in many ways. And I would encourage you to, to think along these lines. And just because you study about God, it's not going to guarantee anything. You know, Pharaoh, he asked a question. He said um, in Exodus 5.2, he says, Who's the Lord that I should obey his name? You know, Moses said, come and let my people go. And he says, who's the Lord? Well, it wasn't long thereafter that Pharaoh knew who the Lord was, didn't he? He knew very well who the Lord was. But you see, just knowing who the Lord was didn't solve Pharaoh's problems. In fact, it really compounded them in a very very real way. We live in a time when opportunity to gain knowledge is uh, very simple. But our task is to really examine our lives and our hearts. And get our priorities straight. It'll never be any simpler for you than it is today as you sit right there. Life only gets tougher in many ways as far as decision goes. In the midst of our lives, we dare not allow ourselves to be distracted from the highest priority of every human being. And that is to seek uh, from the heart who God is. Let me share with you a verse out of Psalm 27, verse 8. When God seeks my face, the psalmist says... My heart said to him, Thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. question kind of before the house today is, how much time do we spend seeking God's face? A lot of you sought your face this morning when you got up. You know, in fact, you covered it up, perhaps. Or you may have uh, taken some things off of it this morning as you looked in the mirror. And you just were running a little bit late, and you didn't have quite time to to just kind of throw up a Hail Mary and say, Good morning, God, I'm on my way to breakfast and uh, help me not to get indigestion this morning. It was not a perhaps a quality beginning to your day because you were too worried about the mundane things of the world. You hadn't made him a priority. Well, as travelers, as people who aren't going to be armchair quarterbacks, we've surveyed a great mountain this morning in a sense. We've looked at uh, the distance of who God is. We've seen how this mountain dominates the landscape and it determines the features of, of who we are in a very real way. And yet I believe with intent of actually climbing it now, we need to approach him. 
It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and ask God to show us who he is in order that we might rightly worship him. Because probably, as Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for just a moment. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why is that true? It's true because if you and I don't really know who he is, we won't worship him in an acceptable manner. You see, the children of Israel, if you look in Exodus chapter 32, had gone through some tremendous things. They really had seen from a first-hand experience who God was. And Moses had gone up on the mountain and uh, was talking with the Lord. And as he was up there, the people said, you know, he's not back yet. And uh, so I think we need to do something. And the one who was their spiritual leader, Aaron, Moses' brother, they got together and they made a golden calf. And I always thought for the longest time, while those wicked idol worshipers going off after heathen gods, you know what? In verse 4, he says, as they made this thing, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then in verse 7, the Lord spoke to Moses, said, Go down at once, your people whom you brought up from the land have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Did they think they were going after some strange, weird Canaanite god? Were they worshipping alligators, moon god, sun god? Not at all. They didn't know who God was, or they wouldn't have made an idol. They were worshipping the true God in an unacceptable way. There are many forms of worship today. You can attend a variety of churches and get a whole spectrum of different worship services. All of them claiming to worship the God of Israel who brought his people up. Claiming to worship the God who sent his son to die for us. But you know what? Not all of them are worshiping in an acceptable manner. Some of them are making golden calves that very morning. That's why we need to know who God is. Otherwise, we're liable to make those ourselves. And miss him completely in our sincere and earnest desire to worship him. The second thing is, as humans, we tend to move towards the image of God that we perceive. Our lifestyle generally reflects who we believe God is. To the degree our idea about God is faulty, to that degree will our attitude and morals gravitate. Those who believe God... Well, I'll stop there. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, we've got a culmination of a God who has been wearied by unholy people. And God says to him, I'm weary. And you look back through the book and you can see why he's weary. They didn't know who he was. They had done a variety of things. The first thing they had done is rejected his grace. He says in the beginning of the book, I have loved you. And they say, how? And he says, well, you remember Esau and Jacob? 